What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith from ESPN. This is former world champion boxer Showtime Sean Porter. Hey, this is Booby Gibson. I'm Josh Craven. Hi, this is Joe Tate, voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And you're listening to Sports Power Talk. You listen to Sports Power Talk. And keep listening, or it'll be wham with the right hand. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the University of Akron, WZIP Sports presents the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. No question, with all due respect. This is Sports Power Talk. With the latest in sports news. Your Akron Zips are the 2022 MAC champions. The Zips have defeated the Kent State Electric Chicken. In-depth analysis. Astrology for women is equal to what Joe Rogan is for men. <laughs> have you ever tried DMT? <laughs> and of course, the hottest takes. He's just bad. Let me tear your labor, and you can go on the You know what? <laughs> it's only game. Why you have to be mad? Just the same old Browns! You know, bro. Hard on pitch. I think that was textbook top cheese. Cleveland! This is for you! From the best that Ohio sports has to offer. To the best of the Akron Zips. Now, it's time for SPT. What's going on, everyone? It's Sunday, and you know what that means. It is time for the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. Some would even say the best sports talk show there ever has been, there ever will be, and there is. Ladies and gentlemen, live from the University of Akron, this is Sports Power Talk. My name is Jake Murren, hosting your show for today. Joining me are my analysts, Alex Henry. Good morning, everybody. And newcomer to the show, Devin Lucas. Good morning, everyone. All right. So we have a lot to get to today at about 1230. We will discuss opening day and weekend in the MLB, the latest Guardians transactions, and predict some Major League Baseball awards as well. In an hour at noon, we will discuss the NBA as the regular season comes to an end and also talk about the latest within the National Football League at 11.30. It'll be all about the end of the college basketball season and how the Cavs look to round out the year. But we will kick this rendition of SPT off by talking about Volkanovsky versus the Korean Zombie, also known as UFC 2 73. So, Devin, I know you're not a big UFC guy, but Alex, we have the podcast together on SPT Overtime. Yep. We're big into UFC, and what's a night of UFC action? It was in Jacksonville last night for UFC 273. Uh, let's start it off by talking about the prelims right before we get into the main card real quick, though. The prelims, three prelim fights really stuck out to me. I don't know about you, um, but there was the heavyweight fight between Alexei Olenek uh, and Jared Vendera. Olenek had the submission win in round one over Vendera. Now Vendera is on a three-fight losing streak, so Vendera could be out of the UFC sometime soon. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the future Ian Gary picking up a decision win over Darian Weeks in the featured prelim fights. Ian Gary is now 9-0. He landed 74 significant strikes, so good for the future. We'll see if he can uh, take the UFC by a storm like he wants to. And my favorite prelim fights, not only because I enjoy watching this fighter fights, but because of his post, uh, post-fight press conference and everything like that. I don't know if you saw this, Alex, but Mike Malott had a knockout win in round mm-hmm. one over Mickey Gall in his UFC debut, 
and in his post-fight press conference. So Team Alpha Male, the head coach, Joey Rodriguez, um, actually just a, just a coach, not the head coach, his 15-year-old daughter, Angie, recently was diagnosed with stage 3 lymphoma. Um, so Malat said he will donate a portion of his purse to the family as Angie battles the cancer. So great on Mike Malat there. Um, exactly what you want to see. He was getting very emotional in his post-press yeah. or his post-fight conference. What did you make of the prelims and especially Mike Malat, who really took me by surprise? Well, first and foremost, I don't know um, how much, you know, some UFC fans actually know about mixed martial arts, but Alex Alexi Olenek is 44 years old, and he put Jared in a head and arm submission. Now, usually you don't see guys tap on a head and arm submission because they have the arm locked as well as the neck, so they're able to have a little more air. A 44-year-old man was able to squeeze Jared so hard that he tapped. <laughs> that was insane to me. I had I was excited for that. Um, just because you do not see that often, especially with an old man like Alexi Olenek. But he's also a legend in the UFC, so I wasn't surprised. Um, the Mike-Mickey fight was awesome. That knockout was crazy. Uh, I like that as well. And then Ian Gary. I'm, uh, I'm surprised it went all three rounds, uh, but I thought it was a great fight overall. Yeah, a lot of great fights on the prelims. Like I said, Mike Mallott really standing out to me. I can't wait to see what he does in the future of his UFC career. But heading to the main card, a fight we did not preview or predict because the main card had some cancellations, but Vince Bichelle versus Mark Madsen, the Olympian Mark Madsen. He's a silver medalist in wrestling. Mark Madsen was 3-for-3 three three with takedowns. Bichelle landed more strikes, but ultimately it was a decision win for a undefeated lightweight in Mark Madsen. Any takeaways from the first of five bouts on the main card, Alex? Uh, yeah, I thought it was a good fight. I like Mark Madsen. You know, if you listen, that I love my wrestlers uh, in the UFC. And I thought he was an entertaining wrestler uh, to watch as well. Uh, we've talked about how wrestling can be kind of boring, but he kept it uh, really busy on the ground. I thought it was a good fight. Yeah, personally, I don't think Madsen stuck to his game plan enough. Only three for three on takedowns. I feel mm -hmm. like he could have utilized his wrestling background more in this fight. I agree. And he made it a closer fight by not wrestling, and he was kind of exposed on the feet by the veteran Vince Michelle, or Pichelle. Um Bichelle landed more strikes, but ultimately it goes to the Olympian Madsen, likely going to get a ranked opponent next, so we'll see exactly what Madsen has in store for the UFC roster. But next, a fight we did predict and a fight we both predicted incorrectly was the number five women's strawweight in the world, Mackenzie Dern, picking up a decision win over the Tiny Tornado, the seventh-ranked women's strawweight, Tisha Torres. I can't believe I didn't get this one right because I was back and forth all week on Dern and Torres, but what were your takeaways from the second fight? I actually, at first watch, I thought Tisha won the fight, actually. Um, I, I thought she had a round one and three, or I don't know if I'm accurate in that. I thought she had two rounds. Um, and then I rewatched some of the highlights this morning, and I could see how people picked Mackenzie fake accent Dern um, <laughs> to win. You really are against that accent, aren't you? <laughs> it's just, it's so weird. It, for you that, for you guys that didn't listen to the podcast or don't, or not aware, Mackenzie Dern fakes her accent. She used to have a very, 
American English accent, and now she has a very thick Portugal accent. Like a Brazilian. Brazil. It's quite odd. It's yeah. quite odd. But um, overall, accent aside, um, it was a great showing, and it was a really good female fight to watch. Yeah, it really was. Another one that went to decision. If there is a female fight out there, I really like that decision prop. Uh, but Mackenzie Dern, she is relentless when it comes to um, going after submissions. Her attack for submission is just insane. She was over five in takedowns in the fight, so we got that right. She can't get the fight to the ground she where she's so good. With that. But when she can get any limb on a body, she is very dangerous. And I think that's what gave her the decision win over Tisa Torres. Torres did outstrike Dern, but ultimately I just think it was those submissions that gave her the fight. And I think if she got more of those takedowns, the fight could have been ended in the distance. Uh, but Mackenzie Dern, nonetheless, a five-rank women's strawweight moving up in the division. So we're over one, both of us over for one. And then we get... One and one as the number two welterweight in the world, Gilbert Dorino Burns, takes on the number 11 ranked welterweight in the world, Hamzat Shamayev. And my goodness, what a fight was this. Wow. What a fight this was. What were your thoughts on this absolutely insane fight? Well, I think myself and everybody was kind of like, all right, Hamzat's going to come in here. And it, I predicted a first-round knockout on the podcast, and boy, was I wrong in that aspect. Gilbert Burns had fight in him last night. Gilbert Burns continued to just put up a brawl every single round, slowed down in the third a little bit, but outside of that, I don't think anyone was expecting him to fight as hard as he did. But Hamzat Chemaev did not get tired. He... he just continued to take these strong Gilbert Burns punches, punches that have knocked down Kamara Usman, and and just shrugged it off and kept fighting. It was insane. I definitely, in my opinion, fight of the year so far. I can't agree more with you. I do think it is the fight of the year so far. Burns had a sixty three point two percent. Um, striking advantage, whereas Shamayev only had 51.9% from strikes. Burns landed 141 strikes in the three rounds that they fought in. And honestly, if I'm breaking down this fight, this was the best-case scenario for the UFC because both men um, went out of this on top, I think. Oh, you know, 100%. Gilbert Burns. Gilbert Burns took a huge risk in taking this fight. Number two facing a number 11 ranked guy that does not happen very often yep. so good for Gilbert Burns for taking this fight to begin with and he took Shemaev to his absolute limit something we have never seen in Shemaev's career and for Shemaev we talked about it on the podcast everybody knows he only he, he was only hit by one shot in all of his other UFC fights he only received one strike <laughs> his entire UFC <laughs> career insane. If you see pictures from him from last night, you can oh. see he got he got hit with way more than just one strike. Oh, yeah. So Shemaev got tested, and that's what everybody wanted to see. We thought Shemaev had the, had the ceiling of becoming a champion in the UFC at least, and now we know that that is an actual possibility because 
of how he performed against the number two welterweight in the world. But also Gilbert Burns, I don't think he falls much after this fight, and there are still entertaining fights to be made at welterweight with with Gilbert Burns. Yeah. Um, I don't think it'll affect him much, but with Hamzat Shemaev, I think he will absolutely rise through the rankings, and really his power just sticks out to me. Gilbert Burns could not take him down for the life of him. Gilbert Burns was 0 for 5 on takedowns. Shemaev was 2 for 3. I think some of the wrestling was really what got Shemaev the decision win. I know people on Twitter were kind of debating the decision. I know your guy Terrence McKinney, who you interviewed on SBT Overtime, thought Gilbert Burns won and was going about that on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Were you okay with the decision for Shemaev, or, and what did you score the fight? Uh, yeah, I was okay with it. Uh, I actually think he did win every round by a 10-9. Okay. Uh, I guess if the what's up for debate would be the first, maybe the second round um, for Burns. Uh, when it comes down to it, and I have a feeling I'll be talking about this more in a minute, uh, it's all about offensive control uh, in a fight and how you can score that. And Chemayev just was able to put on an offensive clinic throughout those rounds. Uh, but they were still very, very close. Yeah, I do agree with you. I think Hamzat Shemaev won this fight. I did give round two to Gilbert Burns. I believe that was the round where Burns put Shemaev down Which was with crazy. 10 seconds left. Which was crazy. I, I was watching this entire card in a movie theater. A very, very cool experience. And in that Hamzat Shemaev fight, everybody was going wild. And that last 10 seconds, it was like, wow, this guy who has been untouchable maybe the brightest prospect in UFC history just crumbled. And it was a surreal moment, but he was able to rebound, start that third round. And that night we got one fight going into the UFC Hall of Fame. This fight likely to do the same in the near future. But now it is time for us to argue. It is time for us to fight, Alex, because I don't think we're going to get on the same terms on the co-main event of last night's card. It featured bantamweight champion Aljamain Sterling and interim bantamweight champion Piotr Jan. Finally, we got this rematch after more than a year after the disqualification that gave Sterling the bantamweight title. Ultimately, it was a Sterling victory by decision. How did you score this fight, Alex? And who do you think actually won? Because it is a very controversial debate, but I think I'm right. I will be changing Piotr Jan's name to Piotr Rob. Oh, get out of here. Because that is what happened last night. He was robbed. And I will tell you why I think he was. It all really comes down to the first round and how you scored the second and third round of this fight. Absolutely. Looking at the first round, I'm looking at the UFC rulebook right now. It says in a 10-9 round, the judge must consider, was the fighter engaged in offensive actions during the round? Did the losing fighter compete with an attitude of attempting to win the fight or just to survive the offensive actions of the opponent? That is the rules. When you look at this first round between Piotr Jan and Alchemy Sterling, it's quite obvious to see, and by the way, there's no shame in this for Aljo at all, because in his first fight, Aljo came out too hard, and he gassed himself, and we can all agree on that. Every 
UFC fan can. That wasn't even Aljamain Sterling in the first fight. Yeah, everything everything that could go wrong for Sterling in that first fight went wrong for Sterling. Yeah, and then in this round he came out composed, conservative, wanting to control his energy. The difference is, all five minutes, Piotr Jan had him against the cage, and he was out striking Aljo Sterling. Aljamain Sterling wasn't throwing as many significant strikes, more so he was just defending. And in for that, I think he lost that round 10-9 uh, just because of striking. Now, was Piotr Jan, and that's weird to say because Piotr Jan, statistically speaking, we talked about this in the podcast, is a first-round loser. He will usually lose the first round. But uh, in my opinion, as well as many other UFC fans, he was... Um, he, he had that round. And then looking at the second and third round, it's the whole argument between was it 10-9 or 10-8? Was it 10-9 or 10-8? That's what mm-hmm. everybody wants to talk about. They were both 10-9 rounds. And I'll explain why I think they were both 10-9 rounds in one second when I can find where I'm trying to find it in the rule book. So- Judges must consider giving the score of a 10-8 when a fighter shows dominance in the round, even though no impactful scoring against the opponent was achieved. So, what happened in the second and third round was the same thing where Aljamain Sterling was able to put Piotr Jan in a triangle lock, a deadly triangle lock around his waist. That is very hard to defend. In 80% of the time, 90% of the time in the UFC, you're going to see fighters kind of stall when they're in that position because there's not much you can do except tuck your chin and try not to get choked out because you're, you basically got to wait for your opponent to make a mistake and try to capitalize. That's what happens when you got a, a tight triangle lock like Aljo had. Piotr Jan, though, not only had his chin tucked but continued to throw punches behind his back and in the sides and when Aljamain Sterling was strictly stalling in the second round, because he didn't do it as much in the third round, but in the second round, he wasn't switching to side mount to back like he was in the third, and he just stayed on his back and tried to get the choke. Um, But in that third round, when they were moving, it was almost that Piotr Jan was trying to get into the mount and not Aljamain Sterling. So for that reason, I give both rounds to Aljamain Sterling uh, 100%, but they were 10-9 rounds. The first round was a 10-9 round, Piotr Jan. Piotr Jan got robbed. It should be Piotr Jan versus TJ Dillashaw for the belt next. And this is, it's just sad. I cringed the entire time during Aljamain Sterling's post-conference interview, or post-fight interview with Joe Rogan. It was very cringy. And I just, I was talking to my friends. I was like, I just, I wouldn't feel proud about winning that fight. And if it's a championship fight, you kind of want to know that you won the fight. And that's how I felt about the Brandon Moreno Davidson Figueroa fight because it was so close. If I'm a champion, I'm gonna know I won that fight. And yeah, Piotr robbed. So that's an that's one interesting point right there because there's this conception around the UFC that if you're the champion and you're the the contender in a title fight, the contender has to take the belt from the champion. Mm -hmm. You know, the champion doesn't just lose the belt to lose the belt. The contender has to go out there and be willing to take it from them. So in that case, I feel like, you know, Aljamain Sterling was the champion going into this fight. Then it's on Piotr Jan's side. Did he do enough? 
you know, Sterling as the defending champion, he did enough to retain his belt. But for Piotr Jan's side, I feel like he needs to ask himself, did he do enough? You know, he lost by decision. If he could have gotten out of one of those those body locks or maybe pushed a little bit harder in the first round and made sure he won that first round, mm-hmm. maybe we'd be talking about a different story here. But Dana White said that the judges blew the decision, and he had it 3-2 for Jan as well. And I also had it 3-2 for Jan in the first round. I do agree with you. I do think Jan won the first round. I thought he was putting out more output, being the much more aggressive fighter, making Aljamain Sterling walk around the octagon, continuously jumping yep. on his feet. That's the big thing. Yeah, the the aggression and just the strikes in general. Piotr Jan, a very un- uncharacteristic first round for Piotr Jan, if I might add as well. But I do think Piotr Jan won the first round. I also think he won rounds four and five. And as you said, it gets really tricky when you try and score rounds two and three. Round three, I did have 10-9 for Aljamain Sterling. But round number two, I did have 10-8 for Aljamain Sterling, which would not crown Aljamain Sterling as the winner. It would have been a draw. Right. So my scorecard would have been a draw for Aljamain Sterling. It wouldn't have had him win outright. I do think the scorecards were a little bit tricky because the one judge completely agreed with you, completely agreed with Dana White, 48-47, Piotr Jan. The other two judges had it 48-47 for Aljamain Sterling, but they both scored rounds 2 and 3, 10-9 for Sterling, and scored round 1, 10-9 for Sterling. And that's the part where I kind of got kind of get confused. Yep. Because I really don't think Sterling won that first round, even though it was close, which in that case, again, you can question Piotr Jan and what he should have done really in that first round. But for Aljamain Sterling, he was so dominant in those second and third rounds. And you read the rule book, and I do think that was a dominant position in round two. Sure, Piotr Jan was throwing those back fists, those side shots, but I don't think they were really doing anything. And I don't think no, that quantifies. I, no, a, it wasn't necessarily doing anything. It wasn't necessarily doing anything. But the difference is that you don't get points. In UFC, you do not get points for good defense. It's not a thing. If you have great defense, statistically, or rules say you don't get points for good defense. However, uh, if you're not having any defense, that's what determines a 10-8 and a 10-9. If you're just getting you know, the life beat out of you, well, that's going to be a 10-8. If you continue to fight back, then I say it's a 10-9. So that's why I still give you um, I mean, on that round. He was fighting because, back. Because there's not, like I said, when you're in a triangle lock, like Aljo had you in at the waist, there's nothing you can do except wait for him to make a mistake. Right. And he continued to keep his chin tucked, which is what where most fighters would have stopped. They would have just kept their chin tucked, tried to get wrist control or arm control, and wait for him to mess up. Piotr so, Yaw continued to throw haymakers while trying I mean, to I don't know if they're haymakers, so, man. Try, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I do know. So I, like, think he, I think he was able to fight and give it a 10 You're talking about the... The, the the position they were in on the ground. And it yeah. was a dominant position for Sterling. It was. It was a dominant position. But it's my like thing is, best. he he held that position for close to four minutes in the second round. There was nothing going on in the first minute to say, okay, Piotr Jan had enough output to make it a 10-9 round. This, almost the entire round in the activity in the round took place on the ground in which Sterling dominated the fight in which Sterling controlled the entire four minutes of that round. 
and Piotr Jan really didn't do much. I mean, he was trying to get out of it. It's a tough position to get out of, but he was being dominated on the ground for four out of five minutes in getting, a round. Was he getting dominated, though, or was he getting held in the position? That's what I have to say. I think Sterling Aljo, was trying to go for Aljo, it. Aljo, he, like I said in the second round, did not switch his mounts. He strictly stayed on his back. Well, that's and, Aljo's, that's his specialty. But if... If you're not, so you said he rode him the whole round. If you're not getting anything the entire round and you're strictly holding him on your back, were you really aggressively riding him or were you waiting for your opportunity to put in that chokehold? I think he was trying to go for chokes. I mean, there are some points where I was kind of on the edge of my seat, like, oh, shoot, he's got the arm somewhat under the neck and then he wasn't able to do it. I do credit Piotr Jan a lot, though. His defense was on par. He was holding the hands, tucking away his arms in his armpit sometimes, making sure that Sterling could not get his famous rear naked choke. But, no, I do think Sterling did enough on the ground in round two to make it 10-8, and in which case my card would have been a tie. And in terms of, like, you saying Aljamain Sterling shouldn't feel proud of this, I'm the complete opposite. Aljamain Sterling has gone through so much in the past two years. In the past two years, he had to fight Piotr Jan, maybe the best boxer in the UFC. Had to go through that training camp with an injured neck and one of the worst weight cuts of his life. Had terrible rehydration as well. Goes in that fight, gets a DQ knee to the head while he's downed, which wasn't his fault. Piotr Jan didn't know the rules and need a down opponent. opponent. I agree. Not his fault. Aljamain Sterling's a champion, needs to get surgery. He's out for over a year. Finally, he comes back, and he puts up that performance against one of the pound-for-pound best fighters, Piotr Jan, and wins the fight. Aljamain Sterling should be proud of that performance. He should absolutely be proud of himself. No. No, he shouldn't because the fact that it's such a debate if he won is if I'm champion, I want people to know I was champion. I've always said this about losing. I'd rather lose by a blowout than lose in a close match because if you lose in a blowout, you know you were just the worst team. If you lose by a close margin, maybe you could have won the fight. That's kind of how I feel about this fight with Piotr Jan where Aljamain Sterling, if I'm champ, I want to know that I really beat him. But it's like, well, I just lost that fourth and fifth round, and my coaches are telling me I won the first round, but I don't really know if I did win the first round. And you're going into your head waiting for Bruce Buffer to name that split decision, and you finally get your hand raised. Are you like, are you like, man, I deserve this win? Or are you, or are you like, oh, thank goodness I won? He climbed, that, was, that was close. He climbed the mountain and completed the puzzle that is Piotr Jan. I think, He's going to lose this belt in one year. I think, I'll think i tell you right now. I think very, very highly of Piotr Jan. I think he's one of the best pound-for-pound pound guys. I think he's one of the best boxers in the UFC. And for Aljamain Sterling to do what he did, even forget the decision. Even if Piotr Jan won this fight, I think Aljamain Sterling would have had a lot of things to take away from this fight positively. I agree. Because he, he was able to fight a way better five rounds conservatively. Exactly. I agree. Exactly. So, and the decision went in his way, and I think this is what makes him the undisputed champion. Because I know, you know, the belt switching hands via disqualification, it ruffled a lot of feathers. Even I wasn't very happy with it. He didn't seem like the bantamweight champion of the world. It still felt like that that man was Piotr Jan. 
Theodrion, Aljamain Sterling to finally the bantamweight champion is Aljamain Sterling. Soon to be TJ Dillashaw. And in his post-fight press conference, shouted out TJ Dillashaw. I thought it was kind of funny. You thought it was cringy. <laughs> but I thought you would be happy with that because... I am happy. Likely TJ Dillashaw will be next. I hope they don't do Piotr Jan and Aljamain Sterling 3 next. Let Piotr Jan take on a different fighter. Yeah. And then Maybe Sterling... Has. Maybe Aldo. I like Aldo versus Cruz, but I could okay. see that fight. Well, no, Piotr Jan's already beat Aldo. So yeah. I don't I don't know about that. One. I like Aldo versus Cruz. Um, let me pull up the or rankings Rob. though. Rob Font. Rob Font's Rob locked up right now. Oh um, yeah, he is. Who is Rob Font's fighting? Marlon Vera, I believe. So that he could face the fight, the winner of that fight, mm-hmm. and that would make sense. So I do like that at the top of the bantamweight rankings. So Sean O'Malley in there. Nah, not ready. Yet. <laughs> not ready yet. Not ready yet. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, Aljamain Sterling, um, we disagree, but I think we have come to a conclusion that Aljamain Sterling is a champion. So, And we're happy about it, right, Alex? Nope. Well, <laughs> moving on, though, only have two minutes until we go to break. Let's quickly touch on Alexander Volkanovsky's dominant win over Chan Sung Jung, a.k.a. the Korean Zombie, in the main event last night. Uh, Alexander Volkanovsky, he is one heck of a fighter, man. He looked so good. And I don't think he ever looked this good. Never. So athletic and so fast in the cage. Zombie just was not on par, not on Volkanovski's level. What was your takeaway from the main event? Man, I tell you, I thought after third round, uh, you know, Korean Zombie's coaches would say, all right, we're throwing in the towel. And then he just just kept going out there, getting hit with the hardest punches I've ever seen Alexander Volkanovski throw in his life. It just wasn't getting knocked out. Thank goodness Herb Dean ended it. I think it was a beautiful call. And, yeah, Alexander Volkanovsky, man, he's legit. One of the best pound for pound has to be. And he can do everything. He can wrestle, too. And that's really impressive as well. Um, Thank goodness Volkanovsky ended his rugby career early and went to mixed martial arts because we are thankful to have him in MMA and for Korean Zombie, you hate to see it. Every single time he went to his corner and just threw himself on the ground, it didn't even sit on the stool. Mm-hmm. I just wanted them to throw in the towel. I don't think there's a stigma to throwing in the towel. And it doesn't exist in boxing because boxing, you see people throwing the towel all the time. Whereas in the UFC, it's not really a thing. I think the Korean Zombie's corner could have thrown in the towel, saved him from himself. I loved Herb Dean's stoppage. Herb Dean has had his problems in the past, but I absolutely love the stoppage. I agree. And Volkanovski is one of just five fighters to start his career 11-0 or better in the UFC. The other five were Anderson Silva, Habib Nurmagomedov, Royce Gracie, and Kamaru Usman. So great company to be a part of for Alexander Volkanovsky, mm-hmm. and he might be eyeing the lightweight division. I saw that this morning. No He's looking at the winner of the Oliveira and Gaethje fight next month ahead of a possible move up hmm. to lightweight. Hmm. Uh, what do you think of that real quick before be we go to break? Aw- that would be awesome. I, I, you I'm like lo- the move? I'm looking at some of these lightweight fighters uh, in the top five, which is a crazy top five, by the way, at lightweight, and I wouldn't mind watching Alexander Volkanovsky fight any of these guys. I don't I don't like it. But I, I think featherweight's also such a fun weight class right now. It's so right stacked. Now. Yeah, it's so stacked. So I, I wouldn't mind Alexander Volkanovsky staying around and fighting some of these up-and-coming guys um, as well as some of the top three guys. Yeah, I think Paul Felder 
made a great point last night on the broadcast saying Volkanovski's at the point right now where he's the champion, he's a proven champion, and he can pick who he wants to fight next. And Volkanovski, I just love who he is as a person, too. He wants people to deserve that title fight. It's so important to him that whoever he fights deserves to be in that octagon with him. Mm -hmm. So you have a Max Holloway, number one. This fight was supposed to be Max Holloway. I would probably make that trilogy fight next. Some people thought Max Holloway beat Volkanovski. So I would make that fight next. You also have Brian Ortega versus EIU Rodriguez potentially coming soon. I mean, you have Calvin Cater or Arnold Allen on the rise, Josh Emick, Iga Shikadze, Bryce Mitchell. I mean, this... Elia? Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. he's only 15th right now, but his last fight was dominant. But that's what I'm saying. Like, Alexander yeah. Volkanovsky has so many guys he yeah. can still fight at featherweight. I think he should stay at featherweight for now. Get these fights out of the way. Beat everybody in the division. Run through it. And I think he can. Yeah. And then potentially move up to lightweight later on. And there's this guy named Islam Makachev sitting at number three in lightweight, and I think he is the future of the lightweight division. I don't want to mess with Islam if I'm one Alexander Volkanovsky, but that is just me, so that'll do it for our UFC 273 recap. When we come back, we're going to talk about college basketball and our very own Cleveland Cavaliers as they are struggling to end the regular season. We'll be right back on Z88. What's going on, everyone? We are back with more Sports Power Talk, the best sports talk show this side of Lake Erie. I'm your host for today's show. My name is Jake Murren, and joining me are my analysts, Alex Henry. Piotr Robbed. And Devin Lucas. What's up? All right, guys. Alex, I think we are done fighting (laughs) for today's episode (laughs) as we get on to some college basketball as the season ended, and we'll start off with the women's side of the bracket. Number one seed South Carolina takes down the number two seed UConn Huskies, 64-49. to South Carolina outscored UConn 22-8 to in the first quarter, got off to a hot start, and never let go as the Gamecocks are your women's national champions. What did you guys make of the women's championship game and any big takeaways from this game? I was a little bit surprised surprised at how like lopsided it was the first quarter with them storming out 22 to 8 that was just shocking to me it just felt like they were never able to really recover from that yeah i was too you know Paige beckers only scored 14 points and had six rebounds in the game she was six of 13 shooting the ball i expected a bigger game out of her even though she still had a pretty good game um in comparison but her other games, she did a lot better. And as a team, the UConn Huskies, only 40.7% from the floor and 25% from beyond the three-point line, actually did better than South Carolina in shooting percentages. But nonetheless, it was the Gamecocks picking up the win. Alex, any takeaways from the championship game? Uh, yeah, South Carolina was the best team. Um, they put on a great show. They were able to solve some unfinished business. And I think they deserve the win, get that uh, second national championship. Yeah, I do agree with you. And another thing that stuck out with me for South Carolina, you know, Destiny Henderson had a great game, 26 points. Aaliyah Boston had 11 points and 16 rebounds as well. But when you dig down deep, look in the stats, South Carolina was 17 for 26 in free throws. And UConn was one for four in free throws. So 
four free throws attempted for the Huskies in compared to 26 free throws attempted for the Gamecocks. So South Carolina getting to the line very often. They also out-rebounded the Huskies 49-24 to in the game. So I look at the free throws, I look at the rebounds, and that's really what decided this game for me, especially since UConn did better shooting the ball than the Gamecocks in that 64-49 to win for, for South Carolina makes the Gamecocks your women's champions of this season. So good for them. Their second title all time, like you said, Alex. And moving on to the men's side of the bracket, though, we have the number one seed, Kansas, versus the number eight seed, UNC. Kansas is your national champion. They won 72-69. to UNC had a great start, had a 16-0 run in the first half and led by 15 at halftime. But Kansas came back roaring in the second half to win the game. Any takeaways from the men's championship game? I really thought this one was a classic. Kansas did trail 40-25 to the end of the first half, and it was incredible. I believe it was the largest comeback in national championship history. Yep. Um, but, yeah, they were able to get it done. They won 72-69. to I just thought this one was a classic. I agree. Alex, any takeaways? It ain't over. Till the fat lady sings. You're not wrong. That is that is the phrase. So one of your analogies today, Alex? <laughs> you teased no. a lot of good analogies before the show, There's Alex. There's some good analogies coming. That was not one of them. But it ain't over till the fat lady sings. North Carolina didn't deserve the win either. Uh, they shot 32% from the field, 22% from three. Uh, the, comeback, the comeback happened really quickly. Uh, and it was all because turnovers and bad shots. And uh, I would think that Kansas, or I do think that Kansas earned that win, and I wrote that I think it was more of a great comeback by Kansas than a bad game by North Carolina. Yeah, I would probably agree with you as well. Uh, Kansas had five players uh, scoring 12 or more points. David McCormick and Christian Braun had double-doubles. They shot the ball well. Um, For UNC, they had five players in double digits with three having a double-double. Caleb Love, one of their star players, went five for 24 from the floor. UNC was just struggling to shoot the ball. And, you know, UNC had 20 more rebounds than Kansas, uh, and 24 of them were offensive rebounds. So UNC had a lot of second-chance points as well. They had fewer turnovers and attempted eight more free throws than the Jayhawks as well. But honestly, like you said, Alex, that Kansas comeback was just too much for UNC to handle down the stretch. And when you're not shooting the ball well, it's hard to um, combat that comeback, especially late in the game. So the Kansas Jayhawks are your men's 2022 college basketball champions. Guys, did we we predict this one? How would you guys do in your brackets? Well, I had the University of Akron actually taking a national championship. I like that pick a lot. So uh, it wasn't too hot for me personally. I like that pick. (laughs) How far did you have Kansas? Do you know? I don't remember now. I I think I actually had them in my four, so. I think I had them losing in my Elite Eight. Okay. So I wasn't even close. I do blame Jeff Longville, though. He's a bracketologist here. He guided me in the wrong direction. And that is my excuse. Mm. Devin, how far did you have Kansas, and how I did you had, do in your bracket? I actually had Kansas in the national championship. Oh, there you go. Nice. But 
I had them playing Akron, and Akron <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had Ak- I had Akron beating them, but that of didn't course. happen, did it? Oh. Of course. Why wouldn't Akron beat Kansas in the national championship, guys? Come on now. Yeah, exactly. Speaking <laughs> of Akron college basketball, though. Um, we talked about it last show. Ali Ali was entering the transfer portal, but he has now officially committed to Butler. Um, I, I I was talking about it last show, and I think the Akron Zips will be just fine without Ali Ali. Mm-hmm. Of course, Ali was our best offensive player, but we're a defensive-minded team, and I think John Gross will be able to get this team under wraps. There might be a, a learning curve next season a little bit without Ali on the floor, but I think... The Akron Zips will be just fine to make another run at the Mike at the MAC title. What do you guys make of Ali transferring and his ultimate decision to go to Butler? It's sad, but I don't blame him. Um, I understand why he would want to leave, but I don't necessarily know how he will how he'll if he'll get the same role he got at the University of Akron. You see a lot of these guys that perform at a smaller school that doesn't make it far, like Akron. Uh, go to a bigger school, and they um, they just are never the same thing that they were usually. And I hope that's not uh, the case for Ali Ali because I think as Akron fans, we all still love him and want to see him succeed. But uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm just not sure he's going to get the same amount of playing time as he got here. Yeah, I, I can see it happening. He was the number one offensive guy at Akron, so I think his role at Butler might take a step back. Um, I know Jeff was pretty upset because Jeff wanted him at Ohio State, so that would have been pretty cool seeing him there. But uh, nonetheless, he goes to Butler, and I hope he has success there. But I do think the Akron Zips will be just fine. Enrique Freeman and company will be able to drive us to another MAC title in 2023. You guys just watch and see that happen. I can't wait for the Akron Zips to take the floor again. But other college basketball storylines, St. Peter's, though. St. Peter's, I have a problem with this, but I'll I'll set it up for you guys real quick. So, a lot going on in St. Peter's. Obviously, they made the Cinderella run this year as a 15 seed, and head coach Shaheen Holloway went to Seton Hall. You also had Doug Eater to transfer to Bryant, and other stars Daryl Banks III and Matthew Lee also entered the transfer portal. I don't like that when you have success as an underdog team, and then everybody leaves. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just like, just stay there. Have another Cinderella story. Make another tournament. Be a team that you were. I don't understand. Like, I get it from a personal level, from the player standpoint. Like, to continue their basketball career, they're not going to get drafted out of St. Peter's. If they do transfer, get somewhere better. They could have more professional success at an individual level. But for me, I just think they should have stayed with the St. Peter's Peacocks and made another run. Maybe they just didn't have a lot of faith that they'd be able to get there again. That that could be the case. And, you know, Sheen Holloway, he, there were more sentimental reasons for him to go s- to Seton Hall because he had played there. Um, so I think that was fine. But th- for their best three players to transfer out of the program, I mean, what does that do for the program? You know, the program was elevated because of the Cinderella run, and now everybody's just jumping off the boat. And now does the program just go back to what it was? And it really questions what's going to go on with St. Peter's. Alex, what are your takeaways on this? I 100% agree with you, Jake. I think it's really sad, actually. You know, why not continue to try to work hard, get to that, uh, maybe make it farther, and win um, the chip next year? You know? 
I don't. I. I doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it would happen, but just having the I team understand the St. Peter's, you know? Yeah, I understand Coach wanting to leave. Fine. But, like, Doug and uh, other players like that, why not stay? There's going to be, when you guys get to recruiting uh, guys out of high school or getting into the transfer portal, there's going to be guys wanting to come to St. Peter's now and make them a better team already. It's not like you're going to have to beg guys to come. Uh, but it's not going to matter now. Uh, and it's kind of sad. And for the St. Peter's fans, if there are any um, that were legitimate St. Peter's fans before the March Madness tournament, right? Uh, kind of stinks. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's tough to see three of the top players leave with the head coach. And now St. Peter's might be one of those teams that we never really see again yeah. in March yeah, Madness. I agree with so that. we'll have to see what happens with the St. Peter's Peacocks program. Hopefully, they get some more funding, get a better gym. Uh, I've said it over and over again that my high school had two gyms that were better than theirs. Yeah. Um, GHS. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, so hopefully St. Peter's gets elevated because of this run and doesn't get deflated because of everybody leaving. I'll leave it at that. But I did forget to mention a wild stat about the the championship runs from Kansas and South Carolina. I didn't know if you guys saw this, but I want to get your reactions on this because I think it's just insane. So South Carolina, the women's game Gamecocks team, on their route to winning the championship, they beat Miami, Creighton, and North Carolina to win it all. Kansas, the Jayhawks, they beat Creighton, Miami, and North Carolina on their path to the championship. So, of course, there was another game in there, but three of the four teams they had to get through to get to the championship, all the same, Miami, Creighton, North Carolina. What do you guys make of that insane stat that both schools had to get through those three programs to be able to get to the championship? I think that's kind of interesting. But, I mean, the programs are really good. It's kind of just shocking to me. Yeah, Yeah, that's wild. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it's one of those... It's one of those things that you just see and you almost don't believe it. Right. And then it's like, just how does that happen? Yeah. Three of the four teams had to get through. Miami, Creighton, and North Carolina, I mean, I guess that says something about them, too. Sure. You know, they were in the run to both teams' national championships. So, again, congratulations to the Gamecocks and the Jayhawks. But uh, for Miami, Creighton, and North Carolina, um, that's a tough pill to swallow for those basketball programs. Uh, but moving on with college basketball, Sincere Carey, the <laughs> MAC Player of the Year, for the Kent State Golden Flashes, or the Golden Chickens, as they're known around here. Um, he is entering the NBA draft this year. He averaged 17.9 points a game, shot 43.1% from the floor. Uh, but I love this stat because it just really, really emphasizes how good of a player he is. Okay. Against Akron in the MAC Championship, he scored a total of six points. Wow. And shot two for 11 from the floor. Let's go. Amazing. Best Sincere carry. Let's go. I mean, that was a great game. We were there, Alex. We were covering the game yes, in Cleveland. Were. I mean, he was dancing on the floor. He was so, <laughs> so happy. He was shooting half-court shots before Dude. the game. I mean, he was just so happy to go two for 11, man. Yeah, I tell you, he's probably going to go top 10. In, in the I mean, <laughs> top 10, bro. Try, try yeah. top three. Yes. Come on now. Sincere, sincere carries the next LeBron James. Uh, Duh. I mean, he's even from Ohio, man. He's so good. Come on. 
On a more serious note, though, <laughs> um, sincere Carrie, we have a we have a little bit of a special guest in the studio today, um, and you know he wrote on a piece of paper showed us he is the sincere Carrie will be the G League MVP of next season. Scott Alex kind of cracked it up behind the mic there. Um, good really, one, good really one funny. over there. I love it. <laughs> the G League MVP. The G League sincere MVP. Carrie. Sincere Carrie. Even. On a real note, though, uh, <laughs> Sincere Carey entering the drafts, what do you guys take of it? Do you think he'll be drafted? What? Where does he go from here? In all seriousness, Sincere Carey's a good player. Uh, I do think it is pretty crazy that he is entering into the draft, but he had a great season uh, this past season. And, uh, I mean, obviously he wants to follow his basketball career. He had a good season, uh, made it all the way to the MAC Championship. Uh, kind of struggled in the MAC tournament, but was the MAC player of the year. Uh, so I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, we'll I, see. Mean, I don't think I think he's going to be really lucky to get drafted. If I'm on, if we're being honest here, his stats really haven't popped off the screen for me. I I know like he did win the uh, MAC player of the year. Yep. But, also uh, had 17.9 points per game. Yeah. So not bad. Yeah. I don't know. I think just prior to this season, he didn't look the greatest. He, but again, you're not looking at necessarily. Before this season, but I don't know. Maybe he'll get drafted late. We'll see what happens. I kind of take it like this: if Lauren Christian Jackson wasn't drafted from Akron, mm. then there's no way Sincere Carey is being drafted. I think his ceiling is G League MVP, <laughs> and his floor is plumber. Right. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know what else to say. Um, but no, I mean, young man, I wish him success. Blah blah blah. You know, you know the the spiel, but. Uh, no, I just don't think he has what it takes. And, you know, that six points a game for Akron, he should put that at the very top of his highlights package. Yeah. Absolutely. Two somebody, for, s- somebody send him this show. Yeah, two for <laughs> I 11. I want him to I mean, hear this. Sincere, if you're listening, I want you to hear this. Yeah, I, I would I would love it. I would take on the – I would take it. Take it on. Yeah, absolutely. But moving on from college use basketball. It as, use it as motivation. Yeah, I don't care what sincere characters. <laughs> I mean, he's from Kent State. We don't listen to them. They can't even read. They can't even write. Can't they can't read. even be can't Akron. I mean, write. come on now. It's also not a state. Exactly. See, <laughs> exactly. We're hitting on all on all cylinders here, guys. Let's talk about the Cavs. Let's talk about the Cavs, Alex. Thank you. Um, the Cavs over three this week. They are forty three and thirty eight, two and eight in their last ten. Um, it just n- nothing going well for the Cavs right now. They started off the week with a loss against the 76ers, one twelve to one hundred eight. Darius Garland scored twenty three. Joel Embiid scored forty four with seventeen rebounds. James Harden had a triple double. What do you guys make of last Sunday's matchup against the 76ers? I think that I think there was a lot of unnecessary fouls, especially with Joel Embiid making twenty trips to the line. That was a little unnecessary to me, um, and. I really think they they should have won that game if they would have held off on the fouls. A lot of unnecessary fouls, like I said. And, yeah, that's what I got. I do agree with you. Alex, go to you. I always end up being on the show uh, on weeks where the Cavs play the 76ers, and I end up saying it every single time. Joel Embiid owns the Cavs. We can never find a way to stop him. Uh, And the 76ers just look so, so dominant right now. Uh, It definitely wasn't the best showing for the Cavs. Yeah, so after the game, J.B. Vickerstaff said, and I quote, we deserve to win that game. That game was taken from us. The one thing you can't guard is the free throw line, and that's absurd. So J.B. Bickerstaff voicing what you had just said, Devin, about the free throws from the 76ers. The 76ers attempted 42 free throws in the game. Just an absurd number right there. 
And talking about Joel Embiid's dominance for a minute, it didn't help that we had Moses Brown as our number one guy down low to defend him. And you can't stop and follow him, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, that didn't do much either. Um, but Moses Brown, real quick, he's still very young in his NBA career. Do you guys think he's like a hit or miss so far? And what does his future in the NBA look like? Because I, I think people are a little too critical of him so far. He's been facing guys like Joel Embiid, who might very well be the MVP of the NBA this season. Um, but there, I do see very big flaws in his game that could be improved as well. I, I think it's a little early to tell, if, if we're being honest. That's pretty much all I have about him. It's it's really uh, it was really low risk, high reward with Brown and the Cavs. Uh, I I agree with you, Devin. I just don't know. His rebounding has been pretty good, uh, and he does add depth to the team. But overall, I'm not sure if he's really changing our team. Uh, so we'll we'll have to see. I agree with you, Devin. Yeah, yeah, I do agree with you guys as well. People are a little bit too critical, but at the same time, he he needs to improve. And I think this off season is going to be a big learning curve for one Moses Brown. Moving on, though, a game that everybody thought we should have won going into it. We were facing the Orlando Magic. We thought, all right, going down the stretch, these last kind of last couple regular season games, that Orlando Magic game is an automatic win. But nothing is automatic for this Cavs team right now because we lost 120 to 115. Darius Garland scored 27 with 10 assists. Kevin Love and Moses Brown had double doubles with Lori Markinen scoring 25. The Magic had eight players score in double digits. What did you guys make of the five-point loss to the Orlando Magic? I was surprised to see that the Cavs were really never able to get it going. If you look at the scores per quarter, they, like, never... Like, you would think they're playing Orlando, one of the worst teams in the East. You would think they would have, like, popped... They would have done great in one of those quarters. It never, it never happened. They never were able to get anything going, and it just kind of shocked me. And, yeah, just not great. Yeah, disappointing loss for the Cavs. I don't even know what to pin it on. Is it because we had role players out, or is it because we lost to a team that's now 21-59? and 59? Like, they looked really bad in the fourth quarter, and the narrative is if you can keep a game close with uh, the Cavs this season, uh, the first three, you're probably going to beat them in the fourth. And unfortunately, the Magic were able to do that. So, very sad loss. Yeah, more of the same of that narrative here in this game. And, you know, the Magic, they just shot better than us, had fewer turnovers than us, and shared the ball more with six more assists in the game as well. Honestly, just outplayed the Cavs, which is really sad when it did come against the Magic. And then uh, we move on to play the Brooklyn Nets, a team that I thought we would probably lose to, and it did end up that way. 118 to 107 loss. Darius Garland scored 31, only had three assists on the night. Four of their Cavs scored in double digits with Karis LeVert, Laurie Markkinen, Kevin Love, and Evan Mobley in his return, scoring 17 with three assists and seven rebounds. Nice to see Evan Mobley on the floor. Would have been nicer if the Cavs picked up the win. Any takeaways? I thought Mobley did play somewhat well. He was 6 for 11 on his field goals. Mm-hmm. Um, 17 points was good on a return. And I don't know, who knows, with, with him being back, maybe that's what we need because they don't look too good without him. Yeah, it's pretty easy to want to just kind of push this game under the rug. But if you look at it, we had the same record. Um, obviously, I don't think that necessarily means that we're just as good a team 
as the Nets are, especially with how our roster is right now. But I agree with you, Devin. You kind of want to see a little more from Mobley. But in his return versus the Nets, I mean, you can't really ask for much more either. So, um, I don't know. Disappointing loss. Uh, but like you said, Jake, it wasn't like we had high expectations. Yeah, I do agree. You know, Kevin Durant scored 36 just very casually. Uh, Kyrie Irving and Bruce Brown Jr. both had 18 points. Um, they outscored us 34 to 19 in the first quarter, and it was just an uphill battle from there. The Cavs were able to battle back, and then just the second half of that fourth quarter, almost nothing was going our way, and the Nets just completely took the game away from us. Uh, it, it's it's a tough game to swallow going down the stretch, but at least Evan Mobley was back, and maybe, like you said, Evan, you're right. So hopefully, that is the little spark plug we need for the Cavs going down the stretch. So right now, like I said at the top, we are sitting at 8th in the Eastern Conference. We are currently tied with the Brooklyn Nets with a 43-38 and 38 record. Sitting right behind us, though, is the Atlanta Hawks with a 42-39 and 39 record. So a lot of play-in um, opportunities here. Today's the last day of the season as well, so things are going to get interesting today. Cavaliers going up against the Bucks. The Nets are going up against the Pacers, and the Hawks are going up against the Rockets. So just looking at that, how I break that down is the Nets should beat the Pacers, the Atlanta Hawks should beat the Rockets, and it really comes down to the Cavs beating the Bucks for them to stay in that 7-8 and eight play-in game. What did you guys make of that 7-9 through nine seeding, and do you think the Cavs make it into the 7-8 and eight game rather than invo- avoiding that 9-10 and 10 game in which they would have to win two games to make the postseason? I think um, if the Cavs can win, they'll stay in the 8, obviously. Um, and I think in terms of the play it's going to depend on if, if it's the Cavs we've seen this last week or so or the Cavs that we saw before that. Yeah, you're not wrong. It depends what Cavs team shows up. The Bucks matchup is not favorable. Hopefully the Rockets can do the Cavs a solid by beating the Hawks. And just a lot at stake here. If you're in the 7-8 and eight seed game, then you have two games. If you win one of them, you're into the postseason. Whereas if you're in the 9-10 and 10 seed, you have to win two games to get into the postseason. So a lot at stake here. Um, in next segment, we will talk about the NBA as a whole, break down the Lakers, dumpster fire, if I might say, about the Lakers right now, and talk about some other storylines in the NBA and predict the play-in tournament that is going to begin this week. So stay tuned to WZIP for more SPT. What's going on, everyone? We are back with more Sports Power Talk third segment of today's show. My name is Jake Murren. I'm the host of your show today. Joining me are my analysts, Alex Henry. Good morning, everybody. And Devin Lucas. It's now afternoon, Alex. Good afternoon. Come on, Alex. Oh, it's It's 12 o'clock. We're college students. They're all waking up right now anyway. Yeah, you know. I expect better out of you, Alex. No, everybody's waking up for SPT. Come on, man. Oh, of course. They've all been up. My bad. They said And you wish them a good morning... When it's afternoon. I'm sorry. <laughs> you should be. Let's get into... Good afternoon to everybody except Sincere Carey. <laughs> Fair enough. Future G League MVP, Sincere Carey. Gotta love it. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the NBA as a whole. We just talked about the Cavs and their play-in opportunities. But I want to start it off with the LA Lakers. As this season, I said it in last segment, has just been a dumpster fire 
for the L.A. Lakers. They're out of the play-in with LeBron James missing many games down the stretch. And one thing I really want to get into, though, is according to Magic Johnson, the front office of the Lakers were in talks to acquire DeMar DeRozan. But with LeBron's input, they went another direction by bringing in Russell Westbrook. What did you guys make of that big news by Magic Johnson saying they could have had DeMar DeRozan. Instead, they went with Russell Westbrook, a.k.a. Russell Westbrook. And we've seen how this season has gone. I think it's so ironic because... In my opinion, DeMar DeRozan's best skill on the basketball court is his mid-range shooting. Uh, he's and the mid-range instead, god right now. Instead of that, we got, or the Lakers got Russell Westbrook, which is probably the worst mid-range shooter <laughs> ever. So <laughs> we replaced we replaced Russell or um, DeMar DeRozan with Russell Westbrook for our mid-range shooter. So, yeah. Yeah, it was not a a smart decision there from the Lakers, and especially LeBron James or LeGM James. Now, last week, around the Rue, for LeBron, it was 75% of you voted that the Lakers' struggles are hardly his fault, whereas 25% of you voted that it was mostly his fault. Now, the wording of this question was worded in a way that I also agreed and said that they were hardly his fault, but if I'm asked... Is LeBron James at fault for this Lakers season? I am absolutely saying yes. Because, sure, you can blame Russell Westbrook all you want, but LeBron James is a key role, or has a key role in this team and in the office. He manufactured every move to bring this team together. He is responsible for the current roster of the L.A. Lakers, which has yielded the the result of this season. So... My personal opinion, and I know I had this argument with Jeff earlier in the week. He didn't like it very much because he loves LeBron. But I do think LeBron is at fault. Of course, I blame Russell Westbrook. Of course, I blame Frank Vogel as well. Everybody in the organization. But when it comes to LeBron James, he is not as innocent as it might seem in this whole scenario. What are your guys' thoughts, though? I would have to agree with you to an extent. I think with him being involved with the front office, that's definitely his fault. But in terms of, like, Injuries and how he's played this season, I think you can kind of give him a pass on that, because just because he's been like hurt and stuff. Yeah, I mean that, that that is fair enough. I mean he has played great all season long, um, but he has I, I believe he is at great fault for where the Lakers are right now. Of course, on the court he's been fantastic, but in terms of building the current roster that they have and manufacturing the moves that he made, I I do see him at fault. Alex, what are your takes though? Yeah, he's definitely at fault. The only um, argument I would say for LeBron, um, this is probably Jeff's best argument, is uh, this team on paper before the season, I don't think anybody said, oh, yeah, that team's not making the playoffs. I mean, you looked at that team and you were like, oh, my goodness, LeBron, you were able to put together a team this season with Russell Westbrook, Anthony Davis, uh, you know, these Carmelo Anthony, and, um, yeah. It just did not end up working out. So, did LeBron, you know, a year ago put together a pretty good team? Sure, he did. And if you try to say, oh, I never knew it was going to work, whatever. I don't, okay. But in the end, it is LeBron's fault, though. So, I would agree with you guys. Yeah, and my biggest thing, too, like, we've seen Russell Westbrook play with star players in the past, and it never worked out. Mm -hmm. I think LeBron was just trying to get that top point guard that was available, and he Mm -hmm. just saw Russell Westbrook and was like, yeah, get me that guy. With Anthony Davis, with himself, 
And, you know, they had that big three tandem with injuries all year. And with just how the season has played out, it never really worked out between the three of them. And Russell Westbrook, just when it comes to playing with a star player on his team, he just can't do it. He needs to be the center guy, the number one role on his team. And Russell Westbrook just can't do it on a team that is built for long-term success, that is built for a championship run. Russell Westbrook cannot be on that team. He just doesn't. He doesn't mend well with them. It does not uh, do what needs to be done from a teammate perspective. And even going back to LeBron's side, though, I don't think it's very fair for LeBron to be calling out Russell Westbrook in his postgame conferences. Even on Twitter, it seems like there's some cryptic things going on. Him calling out Russell Westbrook and saying that the Lakers fans can say what they want in terms of Westbrook or Westbrook, where that came from. Personally, I think he could have done maybe more to build the team together, but honestly, we don't know what's going on in the locker room. And, you know, it could have been broken way beforehand and just not being able to be repaired. But regardless, the Lakers are out of the playoffs, and LeBron James will have to wait until next season to get back on the court. So some interesting things there. One team that is interested in Russell Westbrook, though, is the Charlotte Hornets. I don't know if you guys saw that, but the Hornets right now, I don't necessarily like this move, but I want to get your guys' thoughts on the Hornets' interest in one Russell Westbrook. I have no clue what to do with Russell Westbrook. I don't know if any team wants him. I don't think it's smart for him to go to Charlotte. Russell Westbrook is like having a pet raccoon. It's cool to tell your friends about. Some are going to look at you funny, but at the end of the day... It's a wild animal, and you have to clean up its crap. That is Russell Westbrook. That is, he is just, he, he's cool, you know, flashy, whatever, fine. But at the end of the day, I mean, he's just, he struggles. And he's just gotten consistently worse um, in the NBA. The analogy, man. <laughs> you, 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 teased us, you teased us this morning, and now they come out. The raccoon analogy. Um, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. Um, how long did it take for you to think of that though? Uh, that one took like that one took like a good five minutes. Okay. Uh, I actually had a pet skunk at one point in my life. Okay. Um, wow. so it was kind of easy. No, I feel like you um, need to go back a little bit and elaborate on that. <laughs> yeah, I had a pet skunk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say repeat what you said. I said elaborate on exactly why you had this pet skunk, Alex. Well, because I thought it would be cool to tell my friends about. Even though it might look funny, but at the end of the day, it is a wild animal, and I have to clean up its number twos and number ones. Oh, man. Alex, a pet skunk. That's a new one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, Devin, Russell Westbrook, though, to the Hornets. Do you like the move for Charlotte? Why or why not? I agree with what Alex was saying. I don't really know if he's a good fit there. And but I, he definitely needs to get out of the Lakers. He needs to be gone there. Yeah, honestly, I'm looking at bottom seeds in the East and West, and just put him on one of those teams because that's where he belongs. He belongs on a young team that is not good, and he'll play well. The team won't, and that's kind of his career. That's what he's good at. Um, the he can Hornets, play with though, sincere on the charge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You think Sincere is the G League MVP over Russell Westbrook, though? I don't know. It'd be a close battle. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. I definitely number one and two on the list, though. Yeah. For sure. 
Um, but for the Hornets, you know, they have LaMelo Ball. They have Gordon Hayward. They have Miles Bridges. They have Terry Rozier. I don't see these guys with Russell Westbrook working out very well mm-hmm. in Charlotte. I think Charlotte has a good young core right now. I think they should just stick with that. Um, something else going on in the NBA, though. Ben Simmons is out of the play-in tournament. Uh, will the Nets need him to take on the Cavs or Hawks in the play-in tournament, or do you think the Brooklyn Nets will be just fine without Ben Simmons? I think they'll be just fine without him. They have Kyrie. They have Durant. I think they'll. I think they should be okay. Yep, I agree. I I don't like Ben Simmons. I don't think he deserves to be um, in the game to begin with, or in the games to begin with. Uh, and if anything. Considering he hasn't had any chemistry with the team because he doesn't play basketball, um, <laughs> I don't know if he would help or make them worse. And I, I yeah. mean that. I mean, obviously, jokes aside, Ben Simmons is a good ball player, but what what is he going to do um, that's going to really contribute to this team now, so late in the season? I don't know. Yeah, I completely agree with your assessment there, Alex. You know, he... He could benefit this team, but right now and at this point in the season, it's not the time to make that risk of whether he will or will not benefit this team. Mm -hmm. He could very well detract from the Nets and their second-half push that they're making right now. So for Ben Simmons, out of the playing tournament, I think they'll be just fine. And even if he is ready to go in the playoffs, I don't think that's a setting where you put in a new guy into a lineup. So I think Ben Simmons, we might see him next year in a Nets uniform. Um, but this year, I just think it's a smarter decision for Brooklyn to leave him on the bench and just go with what they have now because it is working in Kyrie and KD and Kyrie's eligibility to play at home now as well. I think that will fare them uh, pretty well into the playoffs. So the final seedings before the playoffs, obviously today is the last day of the regular season. But for the East, we have the Heat at number one, followed by the Bucks, Celtics, 76ers, Raptors, Bulls. And then we get into the playoff or the play-in tournament with the Nets, Cavs, Hawks, and Hornets all vying for a postseason berth. And then for the West, we have the Suns, Grizzlies, Warriors, Mavericks, Jazz, Nuggets, Timberwolves, Clippers, Pelicans, and Spurs. So the play-in tournament is going down from April 12th through the 15th. Right now, if the season were to end right now before any of the games today, it would be the Nets versus the Cavs with the 7-8 game and the Hawks and the Hornets with the 9-10 and game in the East. For the West, it would be the Timberwolves versus the Clippers and the Pelicans versus the Spurs. Do you guys see the current play-in standings staying the way they are as the last NBA action goes down today, or do you see them changing? Uh, I think they could say the same. The only thing that I think might change is the Cavs, what happens with um, that game t- later today. Alex, how about you? Uh, I think they will all... Um, change or all stay the same as well. Huh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't think anything changes. I do think something changes. You know, the West is pretty much locked up. Timberwolves, Clippers, and Pelicans, Spurs, Spurs is pretty much a lock. For the East, though, I do have it changing. I think the Nets are going to take on the Hawks and then the Cavs, oh. unfortunately, dropping to the nine seed and taking on the Hornets. Okay. I just like the Nets and Hawks matchup today way more than the Cavs. The Cavs are playing a number two seed in the Bucks, and you know the Bucks are number two right now, but they could drop behind the Celtics. So 
It's not like the Bucks don't have anything to play for here. So I don't like the matchup for the Cavs against the Bucks. The Nets are taking on the Pacers, and the Hawks are taking on the Rockets. I think those are two very winnable games for teams that need wins right now. Mm-hmm. So I do think the Nets and the Hawks will get it done, unfortunately, for the Cavs. You know, they're 2-8 and eight in their last 10. They're 0-3 this week. I just don't see them rebounding against a team as good as the Bucks. And unfortunately, that would mean they would have to win two games to get into the postseason. So not what you want to see out of the Cavs, but that's just my prediction. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Hopefully we show up today against the Bucks. But let's predict this play-in tournament so you guys don't think it will change. I do think it will change, but I'll go to you guys first. Who do you think gets out of the play-in tournament in the East? So I think, unfortunately, I think that the Nets will probably beat the Cavs. And then... On to the Hawks versus Hornets. I think that's going to be really fun to watch, but I think the Hawks probably pull through in that game. And then that would set up a Hawks versus Cavs game. Mm -hmm. Who do you like in that one? It's tough to say. It's very tough to say. I want to say Cleveland takes it in that game, but with just the way that they've been playing, I I would right now currently I will say the Hawks if that is how it goes. Mind you, on March 31st, the Hawks beat the Cavs 131-107. to yeah. So not a great showing for the Cavs in their yeah. last game against the Hawks by any means. Uh, Devin, I'll go to you on your predictions for the East. You didn't have them changing, so do you, who do you have between the Nets and Cavs and Hawks versus Hornets? I have the Nets beating the Cavs, unfortunately. Okay. And I agree with Alex, the Hawks beating the Hornets. And that would set up a Cavs-Hawks game as well. Do you have the Hawks beating the Cavs or the Cavs pulling it out? It really comes down to how they play. And if uh, maybe Evan Mobley is what we need in terms of, like, a little bit of help. But I'm thinking it's going to be the Hawks that are going to win. Unless the Cavs can somehow turn it around at this point. Yeah, Evan Mobley um, wasn't in that last game against the Hawks. So maybe that addition does something. But we still lost by a lot. So we'll see how it goes. I did have mine changing, though. I had the Nets versus the Hawks in the first play-in game. I do think the Nets beat the Hawks. So the Nets are in the postseason for me. And then Cavs versus Hornets. I think the Cavs beat the Hornets. But then I do think the Cavs fall short to the Hawks in that next play-in game, meaning that the Hawks would also go into the postseason as well. And honestly, I don't know which one I prefer at this point. You know, I don't I don't want to see the Cavs get to the 7-8 game and then lose both games, I'd almost rather see the Cavs make the 9-10 game and at least win a game and then lose to the Hawks if that was to happen. What are your guys' takes on that? Would you rather them make the 7-8 game, have a better chance, but then potentially lose two games to end the season? Or would you rather maybe see them in the 9-10 game, have a tougher road, but maybe pick up a win? Uh, I think I'd rather see them in the 7-8 game. Okay. I'd rather see them in the 9-10 uh, game, I agree 100% with you, Jake. Yeah, I just think we we match up well against the Hornets. I think that's a winnable game, and to get that win, and who knows, maybe that win in the 9-10 game against the Hornets gets us on the right track, gets us the momentum we need to beat the Hawks. You never know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, we're, we're discounting the Cavs right now because of what we've seen recently, but Devin, you brought it up last segment. The Cavs, with their team healthy earlier on in the season, was a force to be reckoned with. As of late, it isn't or hasn't been that case. 
we'll, we'll see what happens in this play-in tournament. I am excited for it. It's going down this week, April 12th through the 15th. Um, the Cavs without their bigs, it's going to be tough to see. How do you think the Cavs fare without their bigs in this play-in tournament as well? The Cavs are not a playoff team without their bigs, in my opinion. I think they're among, like, 11, 12 seeds in the East if they don't have their bigs. All right, fair enough. Alex? Yeah, you can't write on a blackboard without chalk. Uh, <laughs> you can try to use a pencil or a crayon, um, maybe pull out a Sharpie, but that's going to be permanent and it won't erase. That's the Cavs without their bigs. They just they struggle. Um to get anything really going, it doesn't work, uh, and what they do get just kind of ends up not being what we need. We need our bigs. I, I agree with you. Um, I gotta ask you though, how long did it take to come up with that one? <laughs> you can't write on blackboard without chalk. Uh, the whole analogy was great. You mentioned crayons and everything. Yeah, I now. don't. Uh, how long did that one take? I, that one took a little longer. I'll be honest. More I, than five. I wasn't timing it though. <laughs> that one took a little longer. Title of today's episode, Raccoons and Blackboards. <laughs> yeah. This is what you get on Sports Power Talk every Sunday, ladies and gentlemen. If you missed it, you can check it out on SPT Rewind as well. Quick little plug there. Yes. Any podcast platform. But moving on from the NBA, I hope the Cavs get it done today against the Bucks. Yes. Get in that 7-8, even though I think they might fare better in the 9-10. It is a tougher road, so hopefully we can get that 7-8 seed. But moving on from the NBA... Let's get into the NFL because, as you know, this offseason has been wild and there's always something going on in the NFL. We'll start it off with perhaps the biggest news with a Buffalo Bills wide receiver getting a massive contract extension. His name is Stefan Diggs. Four years, $104 million with $70 million guaranteed. What do you guys make of this extension? from Buffalo to extend Stefan Diggs, perhaps Josh Allen's number one target in the future. I think it was a it was a good move. He's a really good receiver for them and I think it would I think it'll work out. Yeah, it's huge for them. Uh Stefan Diggs is one of the best up and coming receivers in the league. And it's very big and it'll probably help a lot of fantasy teams uh this next year. Yeah, I agree with you. A big extension for a worthy player and Stefan Diggs sounds like he's going to end his career in Buffalo yep. alongside Josh Allen. Um, I didn't ask you guys to prepare for this, but Stefan Diggs in Buffalo for four years, Josh Allen there at the helm. Do the Buffalo Bills win a Super Bowl in the next four years with Maybe. the current roster they have? Oh, do they get it done? Maybe. I mean, I can, I can. They're not really well like experienced right now. Um, they don't have like a lot of veteran role players. But if you give them a couple years to really build on things they uh, they need to, they're already performing really well. Um, so I could I can see them making a bowl game. Yeah. Yeah. If it wasn't for the bad overtime rules last season that are changed this season, yep. they might have been even beaten the Chiefs and moved further along in the postseason. Within the next four years, I would probably be on the more optimistic side if I was a Bills fan and say, yes, they would win a Super Bowl. But the AFC is red hot and very competitive right now. So for any team going to a Super Bowl is going to be tough in the AFC. Devin, do you think the Bills have a chance at winning a Super Bowl in the next four years with Stephon Diggs at wide receiver one? I would say possibly, uh, but it just comes down to how the AFC is. The AFC is packed right now, and it's I think it's going to be challenging. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, I think it's going to be challenging, and I do think it's important for them to not only win their conference but be a high seed in the AFC. 
getting games in the postseason in Buffalo could uh, be a big advantage for them as well. Another receiver that got extended this week, though, was Brandon Cooks by the Texans. A lot of teams were inquiring about his availability for a trade to Houston, but Houston ended up extending him with a two-year, $39.6 million contract for the wide receiver. Where are you guys' takeaways for Brandon Cooks staying with the Texans? Um, I'm a little surprised by that move because uh, Texans aren't necessarily the greatest team, but... I don't know, maybe build around him and see what you can do. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was smart for them. Uh, I, w- I was surprised. Uh, I would have liked to see him go to Cleveland, maybe. But um, overall, I mean, not a bad... Tr- I don't think there was a lose situation, whether they decided to trade him or keep him. Uh, so I agree with you, Devin. Those have to kind of build around him and see what they can do. It's kind yeah. of all they really got in Houston. Yeah, you're so. not wrong. I mean, they do have Davis Mills the yeah. next Tom Brady. Yeah. I mean, the next Tom Brady's got to have his weapons, right, Brandon Cooks? That's true. Um, one stat that I saw <laughs> about Brandon Cooks, though, he's one of only nine receivers with 5,000-plus receiving yards in the past five seasons. And in those five seasons, he's played for three different teams. Wow. So he's been productive for every team he's played for. And even with the Texans, with Davis Mills, at least having that number one wide receiver to go to in Brandon Cooks, I think it's going to give them some stability that they desperately need down in Houston. Um, unfortunate for the Browns that they didn't get him, but there are some other options out there at wide receiver. Will Fuller and you know Jarvis Landry come to mind in that department as well. Personally, I'm a big fan of bringing back Juice, but that's just me. Moving on, though, the Baltimore Ravens are apparently interested in free agent uh, Melvin Gordon, he might be the best available guy at running back. What are you guys' opinions on Melvin Gordon uh, potentially going to the Baltimore Ravens? Um, it does shock me a little bit, but I don't know if I find it as too much of a surprise considering like a lot of the Ravens' backfield last season was just like hurt before the first game of the year. We didn't even get to see like J.K. Dobbins really play at all either. I'd cry. If this happens, I'll cry Jeez. live on air because that's going to – uh, that'll help their team. Before the show, you said he hadn't cried in like three years. <laughs> yeah, that'll help. All it takes team. is one signing. If Melvin Gordon goes to the Ravens... He hasn't been that productive, though. No, he hasn't been. But they don't necessarily need a crazy wide... Re- or, sorry, running back. Because um, they have one at quarterback. Yeah, yeah. and they, they've been perfectly fine without a running back. So if you add a running back to the you know to the mix, it's like... That's pretty good. I think Melvin Gordon would be the best option out of what they have right now. That's scary. Yeah, I think J.K. Dobbins returning would be great for them. And then having that tandem with him and Melvin Gordon would be scary as well. And also, I think they're just looking at a playmaker in the backfield to pair up with Lamar Jackson, who might be the ultimate playmaker in the NFL. Um, I joke that he's a running back, but, I mean, he really is some special type of player for the Ravens. Uh, Sticking with the AFC North, though, let's go to our very own Cleveland Browns because the Browns are not done this offseason. They did re-sign Ronnie Harrison, the safety to a one-year deal. In 23 games with the Browns, Ronnie Harrison has had 96 tackles and two interceptions. What do you guys make make of this uh, re-signing of Ronnie Harrison? I think think it's a good move. He is... He, he puts our secondary and like he's been with the secondary for a while. I think he's. I think it's a good move. That's all I can really say about that one. 
Joe Woods likes to deploy three safeties in a dime package, which does give him a bigger role, but I don't really like it, and I think he just kind of takes up space. I I don't I don't understand it, and I, I don't understand that defense either for Cleveland. So I I disagree with you. I do like the signing. I just oh. think I just think even if it's a depth signing, I like it. That's the only uh, and I agree. I think that's the biggest plus. But I I don't know. Yeah, you know the Browns have had their injuries at safety. You know Grant Delpit's kind of all over the place as well. I do like Ronnie Harrison re-signing with the Browns though, even if it is a depth piece. I like it, but even in years prior, he has been a pretty good safety. So we'll see how he pans out for the Browns' defense with Joe Woods at the helm. Um, another move that the Browns made, though, was signing Josh Dobbs out of Pittsburgh to a one-year deal at QB, an entirely new QB room for the Cleveland Browns. Um, the big thing for me, though, like obviously he's going to be the third string, not going to be very prominent, but to me, this pretty much means that Baker, if he wasn't already gone, this pretty much signals that he is going to be gone, whether that be a trade or just a release prior to the start of next season. Um, that was my biggest takeaway, though. Uh, what do you guys think of the signing of Josh Dobbs? Yeah, I would have to agree with you. I think uh, Baker's definitely out of Cleveland. You guys don't think he's the fourth string quarterback? I don't think you're gonna. I don't think you. He deserves to be the second string quarterback with our current roster, but you know me. I'm not gonna get into this debate with you, Alex. Okay. I don't don't think you're gonna have four quarterbacks on the roster. I just don't see that. I was exactly. That's that's the biggest thing from this. Yeah. Um, But I do think uh, with us having Jacoby Brissett and Josh Dobbs as our two backup quarterbacks to Watson, I think that's very helpful. They're both serviceable backups. So and. Hmm. In the event that Watson is suspended or injured, I think it would be very helpful. And they, we're, we're not going to lose games because of them. Yeah, that's a good takeaway there. Um, before we head to break, though, I do want to talk about who we think is going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. It is coming up very, very soon at the end of April. And, you know, last week on the show, we had a top 10 mock draft. And Jeff, Pat, and I all gave different people for who the Jacksonville Jaguars were going to take at number one. I said it would be uh, Trayvon Walker. And, you know, I think it was Jeff who said Evan Neal. And then Pat said Aiden Hutchinson, the uh, assumed number one pick in Aiden Hutchinson. But all three of us went different directions. So I want to see what you guys think. Who are the Jacksonville Jaguars going to pick at number one? I kind of struggled to... um decide whether or not they're going to take Aiden Hutchinson or Trayvon Walker because they do need defensive line help and edge rusher help and uh, I know they have Josh Allen but they need some other help there I believe I think they take Aiden Hutchinson simple as that I could see them just taking Aiden Hutchinson probably the best available guy Mm -hmm. Um, they do need help on their defensive line somebody to pair up with Josh Allen Um, I think the pick that makes sense is Evan Neal, um, just to protect Davis Mills more. They re-signed Brandon Cooks, maybe just or getting all that. They already have Laramie Tunsil on the line. Doing that, I think, would be just so, so good for the offense. And we talked about the stability of the Houston Texans offense, and I think that would just bolster that even more by picking an offensive lineman. But I do think it will be Trayvon Walker. uh, just reports kind of seem to lean that way, even though Aiden Hutchinson might be the pick. And who knows? Jacksonville has done some crazy things That's true. in the past. So we'll have to see who gets picked number one overall. 
But we are going to head to our fourth and final break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the MLB. It was opening day and weekend, and the Guardians are actually making some moves and transactions. So we will talk about that and more coming up on Sports Power Talk. We are back with more Sports Power Talk, our fourth and final segment of the day for the best sports po- sports power talk show there is, was, and ever will be. My name is Jake Murr, and I'm the host of your show today. Joining me are my analysts, Alex Henry. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Alex. And Devin Lucas. What's up? All right, guys. Let's get right into the MLB, and baseball is back, and it makes me so happy. And what makes me even happier is the Cleveland Guardians and their recent transactions, in particular the Jose Ramirez extension. Can we just give a round of applause real quick? Thank you, thank you. Finally, we do something, and Jose Ramirez is going to be a Cleveland Guardian for the next five years. Signed a five-year, $124 million extension that includes a full no-trade clause. He is now guaranteed $150 million, which more than doubles our previous record deal of $60 million, which was given to, do you guys know what our previous record deal was? Who it was given to? I have no idea. It was to Edwin Encarnacion. So we now have doubled that and given that re- or that record-setting contract extension to Jose Ramirez. You know, bro, home run pitch. What were you guys' thoughts on this extension? It made me so happy. It made my Tuesday morning this week. What were you guys' thoughts? Jose d- deserves that 100%. He is one of our most productive bats we have, and he's a solid defensive player as well. Yeah, who would have who would have thunk it that we would actually <laughs> that we would actually give him the contract? Because I personally didn't think it was going to happen. I was already getting MLB depression because of it, and then it happened, and it happened big. So um, yeah, I don't think there's a Cleveland fan that's upset about this. It's uh it's very huge for our season. It was a season um, defining contract, really. Yeah, I agree with you. And like the a day or two prior, I got a notification saying that the Padres were aggressively pursuing a trade with us to get him before opening day, and then to wake up on Tuesday morning, yep. see that Jose Ramirez got that extension. There isn't a guy that deserves it more. Represents Cleveland so well, and just the fact that he wants to wants to play for the Guardians and play in Cleveland for the rest of his career um, makes a lot of sense, and it makes me feel really good as a Guardians fan and as a Jose Ramirez fan as well. But that wasn't the only extension that the Guardians gave out. They also extended one Emmanuel Classe, our closer, to a five-year, $20 million extension with club options for the 27 and 28 seasons. So Emmanuel Classe extended. He did give up a loss yesterday, though. Um, what did you guys make of Classe's extension, though? I think it's a good move. Um, he seems like he'd be a solid closer for the near future for the Guardians. And for him giving up the loss yesterday, I think it's partly to do with the uh, new rules with the second of person being on second base. I still I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> I love it. I, I hate it. I love it. I want 21-inning games, scoreless. I, I, oh, get out of here. I, like, I, 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 like I, I love those. If they can't get it done in nine innings, yeah. then they're not going to get it done in however many innings it takes in extra innings. Put the guy on second base. Speed this thing up. We don't want to sit around and watch 
more and more innings of baseball, going through pitchers, emptying their bullpen, even bringing out another starting pitcher to end the game. Just that's all nonsense. Get rid of it. Put the guy on second base. Let's get this game over quick. That's my opinion on it. I think, take. I think that the compromise needs to be that there should not be a person on second for the 10th, maybe an 11th inning and give him like a little In. bit of leeway there. But I mean, maybe the only thing maybe. I don't the only thing I don't like about it is that it sets it up to where you could do a bunt and then a sack fly and he scores. Yeah, that's the only thing I don't like. True. But not many teams utilize that strategy. So um, I'm not going to. You really use that. I do like it. But unfortunately, this is going to be the last season of the Ghost Runner. But it is what it is. Um, another extension that we gave out was to Miles Straw, a five-year, $25 million deal for the Cleveland outfielder. Miles Straw staying here as well. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the Cleveland Guardians social media post about this, but I thought it was pretty funny. It was, uh, you know, the straws that, like, expand when you pull on them they make yeah. that funny noise mm-hmm. they put his his picture on it and then <laughs> yeah, pulled I did it see that. That, was, that, that was that's hilarious funny. they extended miles straw but <laughs> what did you guys funny. make of miles straw the ball player and sticking around in cleveland an outfielder sticking around in cleveland that's not something we are used to I think that's another good move um yeah it is kind of shocking like the the dolans never really like go out and spend to extend players I feel like they're here and then they're gone like the snap of the fingers um yeah i think he's gonna be solid for us for the next uh few years he is our leadoff hitter as well, so I do agree with you. Some stability at the top of the lineup with guys like Jose Ramirez, with guys like Fran Mil Reyes. I do like the signing. Alex, what did you make of it? I also like the signing. Um, I think it was smart. I agree. Um, another deal that the Guardians made, though, the last one, I believe, uh, Bradley Zimmer was traded to the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, We all know Zimmer's struggles he went or he struck out 15 times in his 28 plate appearances, which was second worst in the whole MLB for the spring training before the season. He batted at 225 in his career with Cleveland. Just not great stats from a guy in the outfield. He does have that speed, he has the energy, but just doesn't put the output that we need to see out of him at the plate. In return, the Guardians received Anthony Castro. He's a 26-year-old pitcher. In 25 games played last season, he had a 4.74 ERA. Not the greatest, but I hear that he has great ability. He just needs to put it all together, which I have faith in because with our pitching staff, we're so used to building up young talent, and that could very well happen. What did you guys make of the Zimmer trade? I also like that uh, trade as well. Um, Zimmer wasn't really much in Cleveland. He he didn't do much for us. And with us getting uh, him, I think it's uh, I think it's good. You got a lot of upside there, and you weren't you weren't going to get like an amazing thing for Zimmer. There wasn't a lot of return there, but with there being some upside, I think we could. I think it could be. It could work out really well. I agree yeah. with Stephen Kwan too. I mean, Stephen Kwan is almost the replacement. And we've seen how well he's played, not only in spring training, but in the first two games. Alex, what were your thoughts, though? Um, Zimmer struggled to stay healthy. He did have, like, a promising start, like, um, early in his career in Cleveland. But, I mean, he struggled to stay healthy. And then when he was, he he was a crutch um, to the team. And I wasn't really a fan of him. Uh, so I'm kind of... I'm. I mean, like you said, Devin, it's not like we were going to get much out of him. I'm just more ha- happy that he's gone over, you know, us getting uh, Castro. Yeah, I think it does make sense. We have guys in outfield that can replace him and do better than him, like Stephen Kwan. The only thing I'm going to miss is that whenever Zimmer was on base, 
it was an automatic lock that he was going to get a stolen base. Um, that's the only thing I'm going to miss. Like, if, it, if he got a single, it was pretty much a double because he was always getting to second base. So I'm going to miss that production out of him. But at the same time, I think the Guardians will be okay somewhat at, in outfield, and trading Zimmer won't be too much of a hit to the team. Talking about hits to the team, though, we are 0-2 in uh, the regular season so far with opening day. And yesterday's game, opening day, was a 3-1 loss to the Royals. Miles Straw had two hits. Stephen Kwan had two walks and his first major league hit. Jose Ramirez with an RBI. Shane Bieber on the mound. What did you guys make of our opening day appearance against the Royals on Thursday? Um, with the abbreviated spring training, I think it's not. it doesn't come as much of a surprise that the offense has been down. And it just seems like in most... Uh, in most years, the Guardians do tend to start really slow in terms of offensive production. Um, the pitching has been really well. Uh, of course, with the abbreviated spring training, you're not going to see big outings out of our uh, starters. I think uh, Shane Beer went 4.2 innings, if I'm correct. And I think uh, 4.2, yep. Yeah, and I think yesterday, uh, Zach Plesak went five and two-thirds. Yep. I think, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what I take from it. And I think if they can get the uh, offense going... We can be on a roll. Yeah, Shane Bieber, four strikeouts, gave up one run on three hits in his 4.2 innings of work. On a Thursday, Tristan McKenzie came in after Bieber and gave up the loss. And then yesterday afternoon, we lost 1-0 to zero in 10 innings of work. Stephen Kwan, you're going to hear this name a lot this season. Stephen Kwan had two hits and a walk in yesterday's game. And in 5.2 innings of work, like you said, uh, Zach Plesak gave up zero runs on three hits with three strikeouts. I thought it was a great appearance for Zach Plesak. Any takeaways from yesterday afternoon's 1-0 loss to the Royals? Um, I, I thought definitely in the uh, top of the tent that was a great defensive play by the Royals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and that one hurt because that would have definitely scored a run yeah. and at least gave us some momentum. And if a Class A does go on to give up that run, it wouldn't be game over. So yeah. I do agree with you there. Um, like I said, Emmanuel Class A did give up the walk-off win to the Royals. And my biggest takeaway from these two games, though, is that the Guardians have scored one run in 19 innings. You know, th- It's been a storyline for the Guardians year after year. Pitching is fantastic. The offense just can't keep up. Mm-hmm. We have all-star pitching, but then a triple-A roster batting. It's just not what we want to see. What do you guys make of one run in 19 innings? Hopefully this isn't something we see throughout the season. It doesn't come as a surprise to me with the abbreviated spring training. Mm-hmm. And just it feels like historically the last few years, the Guardians have not started well in terms of offense. I feel like their Aprils are always like they're among like the worst in terms of like offensive production. So... If they, if they can get through this month and if they can somehow find their bats by, like, May, June, July, I think they I think they have a chance to really turn it around. But that's we, usually how it goes. We do start very slow, so I do like that aspect you just pointed out. Um, in terms of their upcoming week, we do have two more games against the Royals. Cal, Contr- Cal Quantrill will start today. Aaron Savali will get the nod for tomorrow, for today. Our starting lineup is Miles Straw, Stephen Kwan, Jose Ramirez, Fran Mil Reyes, Ahmed Rosario, Owen Miller, um, Ernie Clements, uh, Mercado, and then La Vista. De, La Vista? I have no idea who that guy is. I'm sorry. Backup catcher, do you know who he is, Devin Lucas? Um, I, no, I was not aware. La Vista. De. 
he is the backup catcher. That's all I'm aware of of Austin Hedges. I'm a, I apologize about the pronunciation of his last name. Um, but, yes, that is our starting lineup. Do you guys like the Stephen Kwan at uh, the top of the lineup instead of after, um, you know, Franmil Reyes in the lineup? He's at number two instead of that 5-6 spot, and now Ahmed Rosario is at number five. Do you guys like that? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good idea to have him there. Try him out over there and see how he can do. Yeah, why not? It's so early in the season. Um, why not? Yeah, I think he's going to be a good guy to just get on base before Jose Ramirez comes up to bat. Jose Ramirez is the guy who are, is going to get the most RBIs on this team, and we just need to get guys on base for him to produce. So I do like Stephen Kwan batting number two. Uh, Brian Lavistada. I don't know if that's correct, <laughs> but that is our backup catcher. He gets the nod today as Austin Hedges gets the... Uh, the bench today, getting that rest as a catcher, as always. So, how do you guys think this series will end? Cal Quantrill, Aaron Savali tomorrow. Kind of surprised Quantrill's getting the start ahead of Savali, but I guess they just like that matchup more. Um, do you think we split the series, go down 3-1, or get swept by the Royals to start the season? I have them going down 3-1, and that's only because I think the Royals are a team that is like built to win now. They've been slowly building their team over the last few years, and I really think that they... Uh, I think they they're going to take three out of four here, and plus our offense usually isn't good anyways in the in the first month of April. So I I don't see us um, winning the, the next two. I do think they're going to be well put pitched games though. But in terms of offense, I don't think we're going to be able to um, take both those games with our off with how our offense production is. Alex, I a hundred percent agree uh, with Devin. I don't see us really taking it right now. Um, I, the only thing I would disagree with is I don't necessarily think the Royals are the best team right now. I actually think the Guardians, um, by the end of the season, will be a way better team uh, than the Guardians. Or the Guardians will be a way better team than the Royals are um, record-wise. But uh, they'll probably get one on us tonight. Yeah, I do agree with you. Uh, I think Cal Quantrill is good, but I don't know what his beginning of the season production will look like. I think we lose today, but then Aaron Savali on the bump tomorrow. I do like that matchup. I yeah. think we win tomorrow. And I think our offense shows up in one of these games, might score three or four, or at least hopefully that happens. And we will start the season one and three. Um, definitely not the best against a division rival, but... Uh, it is just the beginning of a long 162-game season, so we'll have to see how it goes from there. In terms of the AL Central, though, you know, a lot of going, a lot going on in the AL Central. Even the Tigers, a team that normally doesn't make moves, are making moves, adding Javi Baez and Austin Meadows. The White Sox are still always good. The Twins adding the biggest free agent in Carlos Correa. Even the Royals with Zach Greinke. How do you guys see the AL Central playing out this season? Give me your early AL Central predictions. All right. Um, I think it's going to come down to uh, the Royals or White Sox taking the Central, in my opinion. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I have the Guardians kind of between second and third right there. Because like like we were saying earlier, they do probably have the best rotation in the Central. But in terms of offensive production, I don't know if it's going to be enough to be able to win the Central. They could probably be second or third in that area, and then uh, the Twins and Tigers, I think, are going to be towards the bottom. Discounting the Twins. Wow. So surprise. Uh, yeah, I have uh, I have Chicago at one. I have Minnesota at two, and then I'm stuck between the uh, Tigers and Guardians at three, and I think the Royals are last. I like Granke. Uh, he's my favorite pitcher, but I don't think he's going to turn them around. Favorite pitcher? Yeah, 
I think he's, he used to mow lawns. Wow. <laughs> he gave up. He gave up. He gave up being a major uh. league pitcher to go mow lawns, and then he came back. <laughs> Why pitch in the big leagues, leagues when you can mow lawns? Yeah, Alex. Why not? You know, but it's a it's a better job, honestly. Be <laughs> I'd honest love to be with you when you do your research for these shows, <laughs> man. That's all I gotta say. Just the thought process of these analogies and everything cracked me up. Um, I have the White Sox also taking the division. Um, I think they're just the most well-rounded team. The Twins, it's still early. I think they could take it, but I do have the Twins at number two. Guardians falling at number three, and then the Royals and Tigers rounding it out. The Tigers are looking good to start, but I don't know with their starting pitching, especially if the Tigers are going to be able to maintain that long-term success over the long and grueling season. So I do have Chicago taking it with the Guardians sitting right in the middle and with an expanded postseason. Who knows? The Guardians might be able to make it. We'll just we'll just have to see when we get down to it. Maybe our offense will come alive. Maybe they will just continue to score one run every 19 innings. We'll just kind of have to see how it goes. In terms of the MLB, though, uh, opening day, opening weekend, like I said, one of the biggest storylines coming out of it, though, was the Mets and National Series. Four Mets batters were hit by a pitch in just two games for the Nationals. One of them was a pitch that hit Francisco Lindor in the head. A very scary pitch, a very scary situation. Benches cleared as a result of it. Um, thank goodness it just hit. I don't know if it grazed off his Lindor's bat or his helmet. Um, it was just a scary situation. Uh, Lindor was pretty shooken up about it as well. Even in the Brewers and Cubs series, they also had problems with hit batters as benches cleared there as well. And that brings us to Around the Rue, where we debate around the table and bring it to you via our Twitter page at WZIP Sports. So this week's question is, do MLB pitchers need some substance to better control the ball? Now, this, I'm not saying go all the way to the extreme, like spider tack and everything, but maybe something as subtle as like a sunscreen that just helps them better control it, better grip these dusty balls that is are hard to control, hard to command, and might lead to less um, batters being harmed and hit by pitches. I would say no, actually. I don't think that they uh, need any like substance to... Um, yeah, and I feel like when you when you do that, you kind of throw in like I feel like you almost throw in that the batter should have something, and that's something that you don't want to have. I think it ruins the game. Well, the batters also. I think the batters already have something in a way with like the pine tar and you know batting gloves, but they, that's always kind of been a part of the game. But I think like the pine tar and you know, I just I think it could make sense. I'm not totally on board, but I want to hear Alex's thoughts before I completely give mine. Yeah, they don't need help controlling the ball. They're major league pitchers. Um, a lot of the time, it's um, not even an accident that they hit people. It's because their coaches are drama queens or they're a drama queen themselves. And there's these unwritten rules in baseball. And they're like, yeah, go hit him because of something that's so minuscule. And that's my one thing about baseball, all these unwritten rules. they just It's my one thing that I don't like about the sport is all the millions of unwritten rules. Uh and overall, it's not going. It's not giving them any more skill to be a better pitcher. It's just like unnecessary, like um, a boost. So I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I think it's an unfair shortcut. Yeah, it's an unfair shortcut. That's exactly. How that's, I, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. So I don't completely agree with you guys, but I also don't com- completely disagree. I'm kind of in the middle with it. You know, I saw this on Twitter with Lindor being hit. 
and the comments were all kind of scattered. Some people were like, the pitchers just need to be better. They just need to command the ball. And even you can talk about the short and spring training. Pitchers didn't have really time to get to get command of the ball. So maybe that is a reason of these uh, batters being hit as well. Personally, I more so agree with you guys. I don't think they should be using substances. But I do think that they have a hard job, and the just the quality of the baseballs themselves makes their job harder. And, you know, pitching has been getting better, but that also was in last year's stage with the whole spider, spider tack and all that sticky substances dilemma. Um, this year, though, you know, with the sunscreen, I think it might be a good idea. I, I'm really in the middle. If I were to vote, though, I probably would say no, that they should not be able to use this kind of um, substance, but I'm not totally against it for the future or at least just, like, get them better baseballs, better quality baseballs that they can actually grip yeah. so they don't even have to think about wanting to pull out a tube of sunscreen just so that they can do their job on the mound and not be a harm to other uh, other batters and who they're facing on the mound. That's just my takeaway on it, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts on our Twitter page at WZIP Sports. That poll will be up right after the show, so go ahead and vote and let us know in the comments why or why not pitchers in the MLB should be able to use any kind of substance. But before we get off the air, we have some awards to predict. So last year, the MLB awards... Shohei Otani was the AL MVP. That was the biggest one given out. This year, though, everything is up to debate, and I want to go through some of the biggest awards being handed out this year in the MLB and get some predictions as well. So let's start in the AL with Comeback Player of the Year. I'll go to Alex first. Mic drop. That easy? Yep. I mean, I I think he's... Yeah, Mike Trout. All right, Devin? Yeah, I would say Mike Trout as well. I'd agree with Alex on that one. And mine is also Mike Trout. Nothing special here. Last year was Trey Mancini. Um, Good for him, obviously, with his story. But Mike Trout, if he can stay healthy, I think this is his award to lose. Uh, For the NL, though, who's your NL comeback player of the year? Um, I have to look. (laughs) I'm sorry. Alex, go ahead. Uh, I think think Ronald will probably take it. I think it's pretty easy as well. Ronald Acuna Jr. um, got injured last year in the Braves World Series run. I think he is the guy at the Helm for the NL Comeback Player of the Year Award. Last year it was Buster Posey. This year I do have it going to Acuna. Going back to the AL, though, for the Rookie of the Year, who do you guys have for that one? That's tough. Uh, I I really... (sighs) I'm going to go with Julio Rodriguez. Okay. I don't hate it. Julio Rodriguez, I think. All right. For Rookie of the Year, I have Bobby Witt Jr. Yeah, Bobby Witt would be uh, The Royals, you know, he's such a talented prospect. He is a big storyline from the Royals this year. Um, last year went to Randy or Rosarina out of Tampa Bay. This year I do have another young prospect in Bobby Witt for the Royals taking this award home. For Rookie of the Year in the NL, I give it to Camilo Duval, a San Francisco right-handed pitcher. He held opponents to a 192 average while striking out 33.9% of batters faced in 27 innings last season. Um, Not normally are these awards given to pitchers, but I do like the rookie out of San Fran to get it for the NL. Who do you guys have for NL Rookie of the Year? 
I, I would have to agree with you, Jake. I, I really do think that he can win it. And, uh, yeah, I think he's a really good prospect. Just to play devil's advocate, I'll say O'Neill Cruz is also in the conversation. Yeah, I don't hate it either. Uh, going back to the AL, time for the Cy Young winner. Who do you guys have taken that award home? Shane Bieber. Yeah, I there think you go. Go. <laughs> You're giving me a devious look, and then you just said that. Why would that be? No, I'm excited. I'm happy about that. I think Shane Bieber, yeah. All right, yeah, I Devin? Think, I think Shane Bieber can win it. I think he can, yeah. Why not? Why not? You know, I'm changing my pick. I'm going <laughs> Shane Bieber as well. I had Garrett Cole. I wanted to play it safe with Garrett Cole because he's always in the conversation for Cy Young. But I agree. Shane Bieber. Go win the AL Cy Young. Even though the Guardians might not get many runs into support you, um, support yourself with a nice Cy Young award on your shelf. How about that? Yeah. Um, Cy Young for the NL, though. Who do you guys have for that? I got uh, Corbin Burns. Winning it again. Yes. Out of the Milwaukee. Didn't yeah. have a great first start on the campaign, but... Did it win it last year? I don't hate the pick. Devin? Corbin Burns, yeah. he can. Tr- I think he's going to turn it around. All right. Cy Young winner for the NL. I have Walker Bueller. Um, he's 40 and 13 in his career. He's only 27 years old. Um, he's coming off a 207-inning season last year where he started 33 times and only had four losses. I think this is his time to rise up and get that NL Cy Young award. But going on to the big award in the MLB. Of course, it's the MVP. The most valuable player in the AL is, Alex? Vladimir. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Mm-hmm. Out of Toronto. Devin, who do you I, have? I think that's a pretty obvious pick. I don't know, though. I'm going to say Shohei Otani. Giving it back to him, okay. Yeah, I think he's going to get it again. I hope this isn't a thing that just because he pitches and hits, it goes to him. I know he's an all-star. He's changing the game, but I hope it's not going to be a thing. I also have Vladimir Guerrero Jr. winning the AL MVP last season. He batted 311 with 48 home runs and 111 RBIs. Just an absolute insane season for Vlad. If it wasn't for Shohei last season, Vladimir Guerrero would already be an MVP. Uh, going on to the NL, though, last season it was Bryce Harper. This season, who will it be? Just to switch it up, I'll say Matt Olson. Okay. It could even be Will Smith. <laughs> um, I know I'm I'm kind of like kidding a theme here where I uh, think, but I think Bryce Harper is going to repeat again. Like I know I said Shohei Otani in the AL, but I I, I think so. I think he's going to repeat. Bryce Harper is a terrific player. I would love it because I have Vlad and Bryce Harper on my uh, fantasy baseball team, so I'd love if that was the case. But I do have Juan Soto taking yeah. it home in the NL, batting three thirteen last season with twenty nine home runs, and that was after a really slow start to the season last year. He also walks a ton, has good plate discipline, and do have Juan Soto being the NL MVP. So that was our little award show. We covered a lot on today's show, including UFC 273, college basketball, the NBA season, the Cavs as we get closer to the play-in tournament in the postseason, as well as some NFL news and Guardians transactions. Guys, final takeaways from today's show. Piotr robbed... Raccoon Westbrook and G League MVP Sincere Carey. If you don't get any of those references because you just joined, go listen to the whole show on any podcast platform tomorrow when it comes out. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, the Cavs are not a playoff team without their bigs. They're 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 lucky if they uh, can get in with this play-in tournament. And I think the Guardians um, have 
kind of turn it around in terms of uh, like extending people because that was not something that they Amen. have ever done. Beautiful. The Dolans really don't do that, and we'll see what happens this season in the MLB. It's beautiful. For me, my biggest takeaway is UFC 273. What a card. Um, it was a long card, but it was great. Alexander Volkanovsky is on another level. Piotr was not robbed. Aljamain Sterling is your bantamweight undisputed champion, and I love it. Yes, Alex, I said I love it. And uh, go Cavs today against the Bucks, ending the regular season. I don't know how we will fare in that matchup, but most importantly, go Jose Ramirez getting his contract extension. Go Guardians. That's what we really care about. It's baseball season, ladies and gentlemen. Watch the game today against the Royals. I believe it's at 2 or 2.30. And that's all I got. That's all we got for SBT. For this week, we will be back same time and place next week from 11 to 1. You already know, 88.1 WZIP.